So among um, evangelical Christians, so uh, Christians that are Bible-believing Christians that are trying to carry out the, the Great Commission that Jesus had placed on us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, um, there's two opposing views uh, that usually come to light. And um, I know it's hard for us in America to think about people on having opposing views um, and being radical on either side of those. Um, insert laugh here. Uh, but uh, you, that's the same with Christianity. There's just two opposing views that come into play. And I did a message on it, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I don't have the date that you could look it up if you have more interest in exploring this. But anyway, on one side, we have uh, what would be called Calvinism. Um, Calvinism would basically, and I'm, this is a Reader's Digest version, probably not even doing Reader's Digest justice. Um, a Calvinist would believe that God has predetermined um, what will happen in life. Um, he's predetermined what would happen in his world. It wasn't a, I saw it, it's a, here's the plan, this is what's going to happen. He predetermined that you would be here on January 29th, 2023, worshiping, and that Andy Bratton would be up here as, as your preacher. Okay, he's, he's predetermined that. He also, a Calvinist, uh, extreme Calvinist would say that he also is predetermined who would be saved and who would be not, and who would not be. So he's decided these people are saved, these people aren't, doesn't matter. And if you've been chosen, you can't resist it. Eventually you'll come around. Once you're saved, you'll always be saved. Um, nothing that you, can, that you can do about it. So that's an extreme Calvinistic view. On the other hand, um, there's another view called Arminianism. And Arminianism is basically the belief that man has free will to choose. Okay, um, that uh, God, um, being who God is, he looked through, and this is this, these, these words are not in the Bible. Okay, Arminian will say um, that God has looked through the corridor of time. He knew that you would accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and so when it talks about being chosen or elected in the Bible, it's talking about people that have accepted Jesus because God knew, looking through time, because He's God, who would decide to be saved and who decided that they would reject God. Okay, so an Arminian would believe there's ultimate free will that we have. All right. Uh, Andy, being the uh, not career politician, but maybe I should be, um, believes that as with most things, the truth is where? Somewhere in the middle. Right. <laughs> um, I believe uh, firmly that if you read the Bible, you're going to find things that would back up. Whoa, Calvinists are right. And you're also going to read things that you're going to say, whoa, Arminians are right. Not that you want to know what Calvinism or Arminian is. But anyway, you can check that out. But that you would find all of those things. And um, this is what I believe. I believe that there are times that God makes things happen. Okay? That he um, chooses uh, things to take place a certain way. I think that there are some times that God leads things to happen through man's free will, but also through his putting things in certain places so that man might go a certain direction. But I also believe that God allows things to happen. He allows some things to take place. Um, I was trying to think of a, a good example from the Bible uh, that might encompass all three of those things that we're going to touch on on one here in a minute. But the, uh, the story of Jonah. Right. Uh, everybody knows the story of Jonah. Right. Jonah. And uh, we all think it was a whale, but we'll say big fish. Right. Because that's what the Bible says. Our mind thinks whale. Uh, but anyway, so Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel and say, listen, you need to repent because if you don't, God's going to destroy this place. And what does Jonah do? It's like, no, I don't want to go. Jonah had a free will. He chose not to go. And so he goes and he gets on this boat. And when he gets on this boat, God makes the winds and the rains start plummeting the ship. And all the people are like, whoa, what's going on? What are you going to do? Everybody pray to your little G God. And then Jonah's down sleeping and they're like, what are you doing sleeping? And don't you realize we're going to die? And then he's like, hey, 
I worship the God who has charge of the rains and the waters. And they're like, what? You need to pray to him. You need to figure it out. And then ultimately, what did they do to Jonah? Chucked him overboard, right? Those questions are to make sure you're awake and you're not giving me a whole lot of confidence right now. Okay? So they chucked him overboard, right? They chose to, but God led them to make this decision based on the winds and the waves and what Jonah knew about God. And so they chucked him overboard. And then as he's falling down and he's about to die, God sends a big fish, swallow him up. And then when he's inside the big fish, what does Jonah do? He repents, right? He repents. Or he, um, in some cartoons, he puts some pepper. And so the whale sneezes him out on the shore. Um, but anyway, he said, well, yeah, he, he repents. And because he repents, um, God has the fish vomit him out. That's what the word the Bible says. Vomits him out. Very cool word for middle school boys um, out on the shore. And then he decides he's like, OK, you've got another decision to make, Jonah. Um, given what you've experienced and what lies ahead, what are you going to do? And Jonah chooses to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Now, God had told him, go preach, repent. I said the gospel, the gospel of Jesus hadn't been in there yet, but he's going to preach, repent, or you're going to be destroyed. And so he goes and sends that message and God had told him that's what's going to happen. But what did the people of Nineveh do? They repented, right? And so then what did God do? He relented, right? I love that rhyming word and that'll preach, right? They repented, he relented, and Jonah was all upset about it. So if you look through that story with that mindset of, okay, does God predetermine what all is going to happen or does God lead things to happen in a certain way or does God give us a free will? I would suggest that in the book of Jonah, for example, we have all three of those things taking place. Um, The question always comes up. Did did Pharaoh have a choice? Did God harden his heart? Did he harden his own heart? Maybe Pharaoh didn't have a choice because in Romans nine, it says that he was raised up for destruction. Yet. Maybe he had a choice in pursuing the Israelites, and then God said, nope, that's not going to happen, and closed the waters over him. I don't know. We can look at the Bible in all these different, these different ways. So I share that with you because today's topic um, is a word in the Bible that comes with a little bit of that same kind of tension. And the word is holiness. Um, now, we usually re- use holiness in our vernacular in a negative way by saying, stop being more Holier than thou, right? Has anybody used that before? Anybody aimed it in your direction? Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stop being more holier than thou. You're judging me. All right. But the word holiness is an important word. It's a word that's throughout the Bible. And basically it means uh, to be set apart. All right. Holiness is to be set apart. But the problem or the tension comes with the word holiness in that God says, I'm going to make you holy or you're going to be holy because you're my people. But then in the New Testament, we read. You need to be holy. So which is it? Am I set apart or do I make myself set apart? Is it God's doing or is it my doing? Well, the author, uh, Mark Moore, as we're kind of letting him lead us through um, scripture this year with some um, key verses, uh, he knows he makes note of a toothbrush. He said, if you take a toothbrush out of the package, it's not a toothbrush until you do what? Brush your teeth, right? Because what else can you use a toothbrush for? You can clean it. You can use grout cleaner, right? You can do all kinds of things with a toothbrush, but it's not a toothbrush until you actually put it in your mouth and start brushing your teeth. And so it's been set apart. And it's not special until you say you're a toothbrush. Well, in the same way, you're a toothbrush, right? God has chosen you by saying, I'm setting you apart because you've received and surrendered your life to Jesus. And so it's not the specialness of who we are until God intervenes and says, this is who you are. 
So with that in mind, I want us to walk through scripture. We're going to walk through a story and we're going to walk through a story about David. And uh, we're going to walk through that story about David. You know, the one, the one that makes us blush, the one that makes us go, the one that makes us go. This is a guy that was a man after God's own heart. Yes, we're going to go through that story here. All right. In second Samuel, chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And so allow me, if you will, to walk through this. And again, I want us to look from that standpoint of God's role in David's life, but also what holiness looks like and what God's role is in holiness and what our role is in holiness. All right. Second Samuel chapter 11 in the spring of the year. Oh, man. Do you guys remember what spring looks like? It didn't feel like it this morning, did it? Yeah. This would have been a good Sunday for flannel shirt Sunday, don't you think? And I messed it up. All right. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle David sent Joab and his servants with him. Joab was David's right-hand man, his warrior, his general, uh, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David was in the wrong place at the right time. He was in the wrong place at the right time. The wrong place was in Jerusalem. The right time was the spring when he was supposed to be out to battle and out to war. This is what basically happened or what we consider with this story is that David's in Jerusalem. And um, I had a a professor in um, seminary who's like David raped Bathsheba. Um, She was the daughter, the granddaughter of his wisest counselor, counselor, Ahithophel. Uh, She was the daughter of one of David's fighting men. Um, She was the wife of one of his uh, warriors that were there in battle. And he was probably there at her birth. All right. And it's not like he had, um, you know, a drone flying over and noticed her. It wasn't like he had binoculars. He walked up to his roof and there she was. You don't live that close to the king unless there's a relationship there. Right. I mean, they're all paranoid. They weren't going to let anybody live near him because who, who knows what could happen. This was a situation where David knew exactly where he was going, exactly who would be on that roof taking a bath at that time. And he inquired of her and she came over and David was supposed to be out to war. Now, I was having this discussion with my wife. We're in Bible study fellowship. We're going through kings and prophets. um, And she made she questioned. She asked the question, how come all these kings are like always constantly going to war when we read the Old Testament? She's right. It's like constantly going to war. And I think it's because they didn't have Netflix and Hulu to really like have something to do. So they get bored, you know, and I think there probably was something to them being to them being bored. And what do we do? But one, I think it was pride. Um, two, I think it was they had to flex their muscles so that enemies wouldn't come after them. Sometimes it was just defending themselves from the men, their enemies. Well, one time I remember my dad telling me this, uh, and this is probably worth some more research. But he said, you know, God promised the Israelites this land of Canaan, this promised land. And they never did push everybody out. 
And so maybe part of this going to battle every spring and fighting um, was that they were continuing to take possession of the inheritance that God had promised them. And the job just wasn't done yet. It just continued to be war after war to try to get that to get that job done. But regardless, in the springtime, they would go fight. Why the springtime? Well, it's just like you and I. I mean, other than a snowball fight, nobody wants to go outside and do a whole lot, right, in this uh, weather. Um, thank you for laughing at that. I appreciate that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just a more convenient time, probably more animals, more stuff they could eat, all kinds of things um, that made it more convenient. But David, we see, was in the wrong place uh, at the right time. We go on. So David sent word to Joab, his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have not you come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents. I'm sorry, in booths, tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. Plan B. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah put David in his place at the wrong time. Uriah put David in his place at the wrong time. Uriah was a faithful warrior to David. I mean, if you look at all the characters of the Bible and consider all the different people, would you not put Uriah at least on like a top 50 list or top 25 list of guys that you think, man, I wish I had the faithfulness of that guy. I mean, he was out in battle. He was sleeping in tents, just like he said. He was one of those people out in the tents in the open field and they're going to battle and there's blood and mess and his friends are probably dying all around him. All kinds of crazy things happening. And Joab says, hey, you get to go back home. Now, any of you that may have Fought in war. I don't know if we have any folks that may have done that. Waiting for your papers to come to say you've been discharged. You get to go home now. And what a relief that would have been. And you would think that Uriah would have this elation just like, oh, awesome. I get to go home and he gets to go be with his beautiful wife and he gets to go eat and sleep in his own bed and all these things. But instead, Uriah does what we all wish we were man enough to do. But quite frankly, I don't know how many of us would be man enough to do it. He slept at the king's doorstep. And David questioned him, what are you doing? He's like, man, listen, David, I'm a warrior. And all my friends are out there sacrificing and sleeping in tents and open fields. And the Ark of the Covenant, the place that we go, the thing that we go to worship God where he dwells with us is out there in a tent, in a booth. There's no way I'm sleeping in my own bed. I am not going to be that guy. And can you imagine being that guy that gets to come back after being home on a furlough weekend and all your buddies are looking at you like, uh-huh, teacher's pet, right? They probably would all want to kill him instead, right? But Uriah's faithful. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so David goes to plan D, B, tries to get him drunk. It doesn't work. And so Uriah, again, he put David in his place by being faithful. And you wonder what David must have been feeling in that moment when Uriah said these things to him and said, David, I'm not going to be that guy. 
you would hope, you would hope that something inside of David would click to say, whoa, what did I do? But it, it was the wrong time. What was the wrong time? David had a problem. He had a problem that he needed a solution to. He had a problem that would make him probably a mockery, a problem that would be a mess for him, a problem that would be big, so big he didn't know how to cover up. He's like, I have to take care of this problem. And you wonder if the words of Uriah just even went straight over his head. Well, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. All right. Uriah carried this message back to Joab. In the letter that he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says, why would you go near the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeru? Yeah, try to pronounce that one. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David put Uriah in a deadly place in his time. David put Uriah in a deadly place in his time. Did you catch what Uriah did? He carried his own death papers to Joab the general. He was so faithful, he didn't even try to like heat it over the fire so the wax would melt so that he could even open it up, you know, like you do with your Christmas presents when you slice the tape to try to see what your, what, uh, your, what your mom and dad got you. He didn't even do that kind of thing. He just faithfully took the orders to Joab and Joab followed the orders. And you wonder what Joab was thinking as Uriah, probably one of his best fighters, David said, this guy needs to die. And so David put Uriah in a deadly place and he did it in David's time, not in God's time. He put it in his own time. So the messenger went, came and told David and all that Joab had said, uh, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one. And now another, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David covered up his time in a deadly place. David covered up his time, his time with Bathsheba, the thing that he did that he shouldn't have done. He covered it up and he did so in a deadly place and in a deadly way by having Uriah taken out of the picture. Second Samuel eleven twenty six and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God is displeased at David's management of time and place. He's displeased at David's management of time and place. This is one of those situations where God made David king. He ordained him as king. He didn't give him a choice in the matter it would appear. Samuel went to David's house, to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, this little village. David was the youngest son. Samuel thought all these other guys surely would make a better king. But then, no, he's not there. And then David came into the picture and he said, he's the one. And God anointed him as king. 
he made him king. And then God led him to Jerusalem where eventually his son Solomon will build a temple. But David had built up this palace and God had led him through battle and protected him through battle against his enemy, especially the Philistines. And now that David is king and God's given him this free will to say, you reign, David, because you have a heart that's after mine. And David made a bad choice. He chose to sin. And God is displeased with the management of David's time and the way in which he did it. Well, in the next chapter, God sent this, Nathan, this uh, prophet Nathan to him. And this prophet Nathan came and he said, David, let me tell you a story. It's a, a parable, if you will. And so David, uh, Nathan told David this parable. He said, David, there were this, this little town and there was uh, this guy that had a whole bunch. He had a bunch of crops, a bunch of animals, a bunch of everything. And there's this other family, this poor family. All they had was this one little ewe lamb. And they treated it like family. They even let it eat at the table with them. That's how much family it was. Well, one day a guest was coming to town and that powerful man took the tiny little ewe lamb from that poor family and butchered it for the guest to create a feast. And the Bible tells us that David was furious. He was furious. It's almost like he didn't realize it was just a story or a parable. His anger was rising up so much. And you could just like feel him slamming the table saying, this man deserves to die for what he's done. And then Nathan, of course, said what? David, you're that guy. You're that guy. You took, as the powerful man in the story, you took what belonged to this other man. That's all he had was his wife. And you took him for your very own and you had him killed. David said to Nathan in response to this, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. At the right time and place, Nathan delivers the message. David repents. But God still does what? He still disciplines. He still disciplines. God chose Nathan and said, take this message to David. This is the message you will deliver. And David, upon hearing it, he chooses to repent and say, I'm turning away from this sin. I don't want to be this guy. I recognize what I did and I don't want to follow myself as Lord anymore. And God, being God, still says, but there's still going to be discipline for what you've done. You still sinned and there still needs to be a penalty paid so that you might understand and learn from your mistakes. And so the child that was conceived with David and Bathsheba did die. So we have this whole question again of holiness. What does it mean to be holy? David was set apart at holy, but does that sound like the act and behavior of a holy man? No. It sounds like a sinner, like the rest of us. And so what is this whole holiness? Well, David was set apart to be holy, but then he was instructed, we need to live in the way that God has called us to live. There was still the law that David was living by to say, this is still who God required, what God requires of you to be his people so that he will be your God. And so this is setting apart of God saying you're holy, but there's this responsibility to live in this holiness and to be holy as he is. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God said, you should be holy. Why? Because I'm setting you apart. I'm setting you aside to be my people. 
But he still gave them laws to say, just because I've set you apart doesn't mean that there's not a responsibility on you to continue to live in this holiness. This is what David said in response to being called on what he did with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. He wrote this psalm in in response to it. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, holiness doesn't have to do with the sacrifices that we pour out before God. And that's what David was saying. What David was saying is that living in holiness and being the holy people God has called us to means that we surrender our whole heart to God. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. God chose David. David chose to sin. God chose to reveal David's sin. And David chose to repent. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are holy because God chose everyone that surrenders their life to Jesus to be holy or to be set apart. We repent because God led us to repentance By sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And by saying, if you repent and surrender your life to Jesus, there's an eternity with God the Father waiting for you. That's a leading by God to say, here's a good decision to make. And here's the result of that decision you make. And we are forgiven because God has allowed his creation to be forgiven even when we mess up. So with all of this being said. And you can argue because the argument of Calvinism, Arminianism, that'll go on until Jesus comes. And everybody will use the book of Romans as their case study to say, see, I told you I was right. You can look it up. That's what will happen, right? And so we have this great debate. God chose, God made, man chose, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to you and I individually, and when it comes to us as a church, God has set us apart as individuals, as Christians, and said, you are holy because you've surrendered your life to me. And in doing so, there's a continued responsibility. What's fascinating about David is not this story of when he tripped and fell and doing what he did with Bathsheba, right? What's fascinating about this story and what made David a man after God's own heart was his repentance in realizing that he needs to live in holiness. He needs to live as the set-apart person that he was as king of Israel. You have been set-apart For great things for God's kingdom and for the glory and honor of God. Now it's up to us having our free will to choose whether I'm going to live in holiness or I'm going to turn away from God and continue in a life of sin. So if you're here as a believer today, the challenge for you is simply this. How am I going to live in holiness today? What is God calling me to today that I might continue to live and be the person he's created me to be? And if you're here as a seeker today, as an unbeliever, an unchurched person, whatever the case may be, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the call is simply this. God wants to set you apart for something awesome. He wants to set you apart for something great that he has in store for you and an eternity that he absolutely wants you to be a part of. And he's calling to you to come so that he might set you apart for great things. Let's pray. Father... um, 
It's kind of odd to say thank you for the story of David Bathsheba because I don't like the story because it shows how weak and feeble David, this mighty warrior, this king is. But at the same time, we thank you because we realize that just like David is a sinner saved by your grace, um, we also are sinners saved by grace. And Father, may we come away from this story realizing who you are, that you are a holy God and that you've set us apart. Believers, you've set us apart to be holy people. And Lord, may the story of David and Bathsheba remind us that we are to live a holy life, seeking you, striving for perfection that I know won't come this side of heaven, but it's what will honor and glorify you the best. Again, thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.